Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 13th, 2017, and this is episode 2022 of the Survival Podcast. 2022! We are rocking along, and it is a Tuesday, and it is a Just Jack day, because... Tuesday is Just Jack Day, where I pick a subject and I talk to you about it. I've got one that I've been getting more and more into lately. I've talked about parts of this, but I'm going to talk about it from the, the fish's perspective today, or at least uh, from the grower of the fish's perspective. Uh, growing fish as a sustainable protein source on your property. And um, I am going to talk a little bit about aquaponics and with this. I recently did a show on aquaponics probably a month ago. Uh, called Why I Switched to Aquaponics, and that was for growing annual vegetables. And we'll talk about some of that as it pertains to keeping a healthy ecosystem for, for your fish. But I really want to talk about these systems today more as a protein production system. There's a lot of reasons to grow fish over other livestock. They are, if you have good a good filtration system, whether that be natural, simply a balanced system with the size of the system, uh, mechanical, it doesn't matter. If you have a good filtration system, they're very forgiving, uh, especially using the types of species we're going to be talking about today. And what I mean by forgiving actually is the more you abuse them, the more forgiving they are. They just don't grow very fast. Because what I'm talking about is you know when you have to go away for a week and somebody has to take care of your animals? If you don't feed fish for a week, they just get hungry, and they kind of slow down, and they chill out, and if you have any way to lower the water temperature, that helps with that, and they just kind of go kind of like, oh, well, I want to wait for something to eat. But if you don't feed your chickens for a week, and you have dead, starving chickens. That's, that's one way that they're forgiving. They also don't usually die of heat because they're in water unless you got something set up really wrong. So a lot of ways that they're forgiving. Um, they can be raised for almost, for almost nothing. We'll talk about that today. And other high-quality protein. One of the, the things that, uh, that people were really amazed by when they came to the New World, as they called it, you know, so many hundreds of years ago, was the amount of freshwater fish available. The oceans had been fished down based on the methods of the time. The freshwater fish of Europe were almost non-existent. And even today, it's, it's, it's the case that most places in Europe where there's fish, they're carp. Uh, the, the, the existing freshwater ecosystems were so devastated by overfishing. Uh, but yet, so that just tells you that humankind has always valued the fish as protein, but we can actually raise them in a way where we don't destroy ecosystems. In fact, what I'm going to talk about today is not just sustainable. I, I would say in many ways it's regenerative. And we'll get to all that in a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. 
All right, before we get into uh, the main topic today, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have these short segments because we're so far into the past now. Uh, we're looking at the year five today. So it's, I keep calling it the year that was the episode because it was for so many hundreds of episodes. But now it's just a year in history, I guess maybe we would call it. And uh, we're at the year five. We have one from David Vernon, one from Southpaw Ben today. Uh, we have from Southpaw Ben, Jesus of Nazareth is born, question mark. Well, Jesus, probably not this year, as most scholars believe he was born either 2 B.C., 4 B.C., or 6 B.C., There are some scholars that do place his date of birth as late as 7 A.D., though for a variety of reasons, this is also unlikely. My take by Southpaw Ben, the techniques used to determine what year events occurred this long ago are really interesting, as the use of a mixture of astronomy, archaeological discoveries, and records that survived the millennia to get when a very short period of time of when events may have occurred, despite no direct record uh, when it actually occurred. I think one of the things that we actually can generally pinned down, this is when this happened, is astronomy. Not astrology, astronomy. Um, if you have accurate records of where certain bodies were in, in the sky at night uh, during the occurrence of something, and you know the point from which those records were taken, like if you can, degrees and things like that, and they had the technology to do that at this time, um, then you can plot with incredible accuracy what day it was, if you have accurate enough readings. I do find it interesting that we can pin things down like that when someone took the time to record certain things, they found something to be important enough. Of course, the birth of Jesus, no matter what your um, political, your religious leanings, I guess I would say, on that, um, wasn't one of those. No matter what became of Christianity, you know, the year Jesus was born, um, no one really thought much of it. No one really thought much of it. Um, Tiberius in Germania from David Verne. Last year, Tiberius was adopted by Augustus as his heir and has been given command over the German frontier. The only unconquered tribe remaining in eastern Germania was the Marcomanni. Tiberius has gathered ten legions around 50,000 soldiers in an attempt to stamp out any further resistance and turn the area into an actual province. The legions finished reaching their staging points and set up camp for the winter to prepare for campaign season in the spring. My take by David Verne. This is just another campaign in what was a long entangled relationship between Rome and the Germanic tribes. Rome used plenty of military force and diplomacy to influence the tribes, but never managed to rule them. In Gaul, the Celts uh, lived in fortified cities that the Romans could take. In Germania, uh, the population was too scattered to rule. Germania will never pose a major threat to the empire until the 5th century. A lot of lessons in that. Um, this is centralized versus decentralized. That's what this really is. And you can look at that from a standpoint of trying to conquer a people, that if people are centralized, uh, they rely on cities as their main points of, of all things, then conquering them is as simple as conquering their cities. When they live off the land, when they move, when they have informal relationships between different groups, uh, when they behave a lot more like hill people than, than, than flatland people, they're more of, a, of, a, of, of somebody that lives on fish and game uh, than somebody that lives on agricultural crops, then they're much more difficult to control. And, of course, there, if you look at that historically in The Art of Not Being Governed, a wonderful book that, that's worth reading, um, there's always been that split. And it's usually the hill people. Uh, that today we would call the, the truly rural people that are the most skeptical of government. 
And it is the Flatlanders, which we'd call the city people today, they're much dependent on the government and the state, and they want to make a deal with the state. They want the state to fix their problems. But we can take that into the world of technology. If you look at what, one of the biggest disruptors in the world today is cryptocurrencies. And when Bitcoin came out, it was, you know, the first they ignore you, then they mock you, then they fight you, and then you win, right? Um, well, not if they beat you when they fight you. Well, when fight came for Bitcoin, it was like trying to play whack-a-mole, but there were a thousand holes, you had one hammer, and the mole that was the furthest away was the one that always came up, and it was only an illusion, it wasn't really there, and you really couldn't do anything with it. And that's because it was decentralized. Now, if you look at something comparative that used Bitcoin, like Silk Road, that was a place controlled by a person and an entity, when the government wanted to make an example of that and attempted, I think more than anything else, damage cryptocurrency, they just squished it. They knew right where Ross Ulbright was. They went and they got him and they put him in prison for the rest of his lifetimes three. It's unjust and it's wrong, but because there was a single point of attack, there was a place to attack. And I think we need to do more things in a decentralized manner going forward. So there is no point of attack. My take by Jack Spierko. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts. For you, NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, the Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today, click on members to learn more, and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. Okay, so let's get right into the uh, the main topic today of growing fish for protein. And I want to kind of come out of the gate and say that, and I think I kind of mentioned this already, I'm, I'm not going to really delineate between aquaponics and aquatics or aquaculture, even though I've kind of driven into the audience's mind for, for years and years now, aquaculture is not aquaponics. It's true, and once you understand that, then I can bring you back in and say, but yeah, it kind of is. And here's what I mean by that. Aquaculture is growing fish. Aquaponics is growing plants and fish. It's, and it's almost inevitable that on a small scale you're ever going to grow fish without plants. Whether it's just duckweed floating on the surface, whether it's some reeds or maybe something useful like some taro or water chestnut in the tanks, even if you're not routing them through what we think of as an aquaponic system, we're probably putting plants into that ecosystem because it makes it more stable, it buffers pH, it provides oxygen, it absorbs excess nutrients, it provides shade. I mean, there's like so many reasons we would do that. We're almost always going to do it. So all aquaponics is is a specialized way of using aquaculture in a balanced situation to grow plants. Where normal aquaculture is simply, yeah, there's some plants there, but it's not fully balanced. The system has to be large enough or have mechanical filtration or simply be stocked at a rate that it can maintain itself without overdoing things. And natural biology in the system takes care of it, things like that. 
where, again, aquaponics were saying, well, we need X amount of square feet of grow area relative to how many gallons of water to how many fish in the water to balance that equation. And then that math never stands stands up. It always ends up being, okay, uh, we're getting a little too much uh, nutrient in the system, so we need more plants, we need more surface area, or we're not getting enough, so we need to add more fish, or we add, need to add some sort of supplemental nutrient. Um, so both of them kind of are the same but different, man, in the words of Tommy Chong. And no, I won't play the song again, I promise. Um, some of you know the song from the movie. <laughs> anyway, um, but it is the same but different, okay? And I am going to assume in this episode that you have a, a, a basic understanding of aquaponics, including things like what is an ebb and flow bed, what is a wicking bed, um, what is a constant flow bed, uh, things like that. Uh, and, and if you don't, what I, I might recommend is that you, you take a break today and go back and listen to an episode from last month. It's about, about, I think it was about six weeks ago. I have a link to today's show notes. It was episode 1976 on aquaponics. And it gives you a really great explanation of all these different technologies that will play some part in some of the things that we'll talk about today. And that might make things a, a little bit more clear. With that said, let's let's talk about why would we grow fish in the first place? Like of all the things we could grow, you know, we can grow quail, they give us eggs and meat, we can grow chickens, they give us eggs and meat. I'm growing 13 turkeys this year. Um, by the way, I think like three or four are claimed so far, so I still have turkeys available for claiming. Uh, if you want to buy a turkey for me this year, throw a little quick commercial, I guess you call it, you have to be local to the area, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm near Azel, so you can look it up on your map. And the way it works is you come get your turkey alive. You don't kill it here. I don't kill it for you. You take your turkey and you either take it home and you self-process it or I have a processor in Weatherford. You can take it to, once it's processed, you weigh it and you pay me $4 a pound. The turkeys will be ready probably about two weeks before Thanksgiving. And uh, it's first come, first serve. You get a number. When turkeys are ready, you get a notification. Whoever gets here first gets to pick the turkey based on how big they are. They range dressed weight from 26 to 40 pounds. So a four dollar a pound turkey at thirty pounds, uh, you know, it's one hundred twenty bucks. Uh, but you won't get a turkey like this anywhere else. They're fantastic. We raise turkeys for meat, and I can take this little bitty bird that's it's about you know the size of a wallet, you know, a man's wallet, and, and in in four and a half five months I can grow it into thirty pounds or more of protein. So why would we grow a little bitty fish? Well. A lot of that's to do with feed conversion ratios. So I have to give that turkey an awful lot of feed to get them up to that weight. Uh, it's the, the biggest expense in growing them. These are some basic numbers, and it, it varies by a lot of different things. But in general, fish will have a feed conversion ratio of about 1.1 to 1.2, which means if I give a fish uh, 1.2 pounds of feed, and that fish actually consumes that 1.2 pounds, then that fish at the end of that consumption of 1.2 pounds should weigh about one pound. If we look at something like chickens, and we're even talking broiler chickens that are designed for high feed conversion ratio, we're generally looking at about 1.8. So it takes about 1.8 pound of feed to put one pound of weight on the, on the chicken. Additionally, that's not yield, that's live weight. That includes feet, feathers, beak, bones, you name it where fish have a pretty high conversion ratio to how much the total body weight is to the usable component of the fish, more so than most mammals and things like that. So they're, they're efficient is, is, I guess, a, a quick way to say that. Um, they're also high quality as far as the protein quality. 
Um, they are, and, the, and the, that quality is largely based on the conditions of the water that they're raised in and the quality of the feed that they're given, given that you have control over both of those, though. You have a high-quality protein. But, I mean, when I look at fish as something that you want to have in a system that you can harvest at will from, I, I see a much higher purpose for them than just about any other animal. If we compare that to a chicken, you basically have two types of chickens in the world. There's dual purpose, but they're not really great. Uh, as a meat producer. They're really not. So you either have a meat-producing chicken or an egg-producing chicken. And this is an anti-chicken. This is just an evaluation of the facts when it comes to harvesting meat. If we have meat chickens, there's a window that they need to be harvested in at about 8 to 14 weeks. And 14 is pushing it for most meat breeds. And that means that there's a whole concept of we have to take a baby chicken, we have to brood it, we have to take care of it for three weeks like it's, like it's a, an eggshell. Uh, even though it's already out of the eggshell. Then we have to put it outside. We have to worry about something eating. It gets too hot and get too cold. And then at about eight weeks of growth on a meat chicken, we have a young, harvestable, tender broiler, and we can grow that out for a few more weeks and get you know another couple pounds on it. And then it gets really big, and then it has a heart attack, and it dies. Right? The, the, these birds are not designed to maintain throughout a, a year. They just aren't. If we go with something we're going to call a dual purpose, like let's say a buff Orpington, if we really want to eat that bird and we really want to enjoy the experience, we still kind of have about the same window, maybe up to about 22 weeks to harvest that bird before it begins to get tough. And then our meat yield is very low because it's not a purpose-built bird. So the chicken doesn't pass the muster for being saved on the, on the, on the, on the fly, right? saved on the, on the foot, uh, for protein harvest at will. We look at something like rabbits, they're a little bit better, but again, usually you're going to have kits, and then they're going to grow into fryer-sized bunnies, and you're going to harvest them in a window. And most of the time when people call, call older animals, they're like a stewing rabbit, like a stewing chicken. Like, so they, it's not really like, oh, well, I'll just go get one now, is what I'm saying when I'm saying, like, harvest at will. Quail, um, they're the closest I've found to having that ability, but I can tell you flat out, a six-week-old quail is a hell of a lot more tender than a 22-week-old quail. And all of these animals require a lot of husbandry uh, to make sure that they don't die, that they, you know, you have to worry about where their waste goes. If they're free-range, you have to worry about them causing damage, etc., etc. They don't really look after themselves. Where we can take something like fish... And yesterday I went out to a pond that I've been doing really well harvesting bullheads from, and it was too hot. I, I went too early in the day. Uh, I got kind of done with the show early enough to get out early. But but midday, where it was like 100 degrees out. But little various sunfishes were biting, mostly uh, green sunfish and bluegills. And I caught about 50 little fish, and I'm talking two to four inches, um, probably mostly around three. In about 45 minutes and decided, hell, it's too hot, nothing else is biting, I'm coming home. And I dumped them into one of the tanks in my, one of my aquaponic systems. That's it. Um, I go out and I feed uh, the various fish in the evening. But if I have a day where I'm really tired and I don't feel like feeding them, they don't get fed for a day. They don't die. They don't suffer. They're okay. Uh, the system is balanced. It's, it's, it's set up to filter itself. It's set up in a continuously running, reciprocating cycle. They're in there. And I have fish of various size in there, and as they get bigger, they move to larger tanks. 
And that's fairly easy to do because you dip net them out, and the bigger tanks are a lot harder to dip net them out, but that's why the bigger fish go in there. And if I wanted to have a couple bluegill sunfish for dinner tonight, I could go out there with a hand line to one of the bigger tanks, and I could drop a couple pieces of earthworm in there and yank a couple out, throw them on a board, fillet them, or just skin them and throw, you know, scale them and, and gut them and throw them on the grill head on, or however I want to do them, and I could just harvest them. And I can forget about it until I want another one. And I don't know of another animal that allows that level of ease when it comes to harvest. And if you have something like an in-ground pond that we'll talk about a little bit later today, let's say you know even a tenth to a quarter acre, or even smaller than that, you know a twentieth of an acre pond that's got some depth to it and some stability to it, you can do something as simple as set up a deer feeder with fish pellets in it with a deflector on it, so that when that deer feeder goes off, it throws all the feed in one direction instead of 360 degrees, and fill that thing once every two months, set a timer and forget it, and you're going to have not just a lot of fish, but you're going to have enough supplemental feed to keep size on your fish. You're going to have them trained to be fed at a certain time, and all you got to do is show up with a, a line and uh, you know a hook and line, you know five minutes before that feeder's supposed to go off, and they're basically sitting there looking like. Where is it? I know it's coming soon. And bang, 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 two or three fish. You're not sitting there cleaning like when David and I just went last week, went fishing with our guide Omar out on Lake Tawakini. We had a great day. We came home with 50 white bass, uh, three yellow bass, uh, and a blue cat. But, I mean, it took Omar a while to sit there filleting them all, and then I had to bring them home and vacuum seal them and put them in the freezer. And I don't mind that at all. But, you know, let's say it's 4.30 in the afternoon, And I said to Dorothy, what are we eating tonight? She says, well, leftovers. And I go, what's leftovers? She goes, not much. And I go, did you take anything out of the freezer? She goes, no. All right, we're eating fish. Go down the pond. I can go out to one of the tanks, whatever, and just pull a few fish out. You know, grab some sweet potato greens to saute with them or something like that, make a little cucumber salsa, we're good to go. That is something that fish do for you that I don't think anybody else or anything else does. And what it also does for you is if you have a system set up like that and you have enough capacity and you do go out and fish and you bring some fish home and you have a live well or some way to keep them alive, even if they're big enough to harvest, even if you don't want to grow them out for a long period of time, you can throw them in a tank, an isolated tank where they're easy to get out. And it's Wednesday night, you throw them in there and they'll probably be just fine by Saturday and they'll be in that nice clean filtered system that you have for those few days and Saturday you can go out there and fillet them. Like So, again, I don't know anything else that offers all of this put together in one package. Because if you want more quail, you have to hatch them or you have to buy them. If you want more chickens, etc., or you have to have breeding animals on site. That do, you can't just go out in the native wild and pick them up, but native fishes you can. And that brings me kind of my next thing. I, I really recommend that people grow native fish over imported fish like tilapia. I didn't say not to grow tilapia. I have tilapia in my system right now. White Niles, they're great. And no qualms about it. They grow fast. They're high-quality protein. But I have more native fish than tilapia. Here's why. Number one, native fish, you can harvest them from your local ecosystems, drop them right into your system. Your system's going to be running about the same temperature, cycles, seasons, nutrients, Pests, diseases, um, 
good and bad microbes, all of it's going to be about the same as where you got them. If anything, it's going to be a little better with a little bit more stability. But your winner is going to be the same winner that they are designed to survive anyway. And if they are from a local area, then some source of feed also probably exists that can be harvested or grown locally without having to always rely on commercial feed. And I'm, I'm, I'm only so far on that myself, but I'm coming up with new ideas and new ways to at least reduce the commercial feed input. So they, they have all of that going for them. And the other reality is they're good enough. And some of the advantages of tilapia can be offset by, well, what are you harvesting? So, yeah, I harvested yesterday 50 of these little bitty fish. Those fish are going to be in that system for a good 18 months before they're harvest size. Where tilapia will do that in, in about seven months, they'll be harvestable from, from you know, fingerlings. Uh, fish smaller than what I put in there will be there in seven months. The, the ones I got this year, I got them in March, and they were tiny. They call them fingerlings. They're about fingernailings is what they should call them, man. They're about as big as a thumbnail in, in, in size. And uh, they're already four and a half inches, five inches. So, yeah, they grow really fast. But nothing says that I have to go out and harvest these two- and three-inch fish. I harvested them because they were there, and I need a lot of fish now, period. And I'm, I'm staging fish at different sizes. But I know another pond that I can go to, and I can easily catch bluegill and other sunfish species that you know are almost big enough, or really are big enough, but could, you just prefer they be a little bit bigger. Well, then how long do they have to grow out? Two months, four months, five months? You know, or if I do leave them in the system for a year, how large are they then? So you have this ability then to say, I'm going to specifically go out and target very small fish for this tank, and I'm going to target moderate-sized fish for this tank, and to immediately put scale into your system. Because what you, re you need to realize with these types of, of systems is, yeah, it might take that little fish two years to be harvestable. But once that little fish is harvestable, if you're continuously adding new fish of various sizes, something's always harvestable. Because this is not farming where the goal is to grow out fish and harvest you know, a thousand pounds of fish in one day and sell them to market. This is a sustainable backyard system that you can harvest from again at will. And I think local fish much, much outproduce tilapia that way because you can't overwinter tilapia without supplemental heating or something like that. Now, if you live in South Texas or South Florida where you can overwinter tilapia without supplemental heat, then forget everything I said because for all intents and purposes, they are a local species. In fact, in Florida, they are. You can, if you live in South Florida, you can go out to certain canals and stuff and just catch tilapia. I don't know what the state of Florida feels about you know what you do with them after that, But, you know, I know they're there. Texas, there's places in Texas like that, but you're required as an angler to kill them as soon as they're caught, which I think is also kind of short-sighted because they're there, and that's not going to get rid of them. It's just not. And in our lakes up around where I live, unless there's a power generation system on the lake that produces warm water in the winter where they can go to to stay alive, they die. They die. In Arkansas, they stock tilapia in public lakes every year to feed stripers and hybrids and bass and they blow up in population and then they all die. So, you know, I, I think there's some stupidity of the state in there once again. But tilapia still have a place in my book because they grow fast and because they'll they'll live to a large degree on aquatic vegetation. Right now, 
in one of my systems, I have two 470-gallon tanks tied into another series of 120-gallon tanks, three of those. And the upper 470-gallon tank that, 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 that overflows down to the lower one is full of azola and duckweed and salvinia, which are three different floating aquatic plants, and so are the upper three 120-gallon tanks. And about once every other day, I go out with a, with a, a strainer, like a kitchen uh, colander strainer, and I get a huge bunch of that stuff out of those upper tanks. And it grows right back in a couple days. Everything I take out, if I don't, if I don't harvest it, it overgrows because there's no tilapia in those upper tanks. And I just throw it in the lower tank. And when I come out the next morning, there's nothing in there. They eat it all. You know, and duckweed is very high protein. So I don't have native species that I see that will feed on vegetation like that. So in my system, the tilapia get one tank, in, in one of my systems, I should say, the tilapia get one tank, the native species get another tank. I grow the food for the tilapia with the native species who won't eat it, or at least don't eat it in large amounts, and I can send it down to the tilapia, and it helps balance the system. So I didn't have to feed those tilapia less, and those tilapia, compared to the ones in my aquaponic system, which, which are, are surviving mostly on supplemental feed, are outgrowing them. They're actually growing faster because they're getting supplemental, but they're also getting all this aquatic vegetation. So, so they have their place. I just think that the wise aquaculturists today will build a system based on both and will focus more heavily on the native species and eventually over time may even atrophy out any kind of exotic species whatsoever. They're just to help you get things off the ground and get a quick yield. Um, now, I've done a lot about explaining the difference between aquaponics and aquaculture. And I said today that I'm kind of not differentiating. And I'm not, but I still am, because you have to. Okay, I hope I'm not double-talking you too much here. But here's what I mean by that. When we have an aquaponics system, we have a situation where we're overstocking the fish and then we're putting enough plant and filter media in there to use all of that extra nutrient to grow plants. And if we didn't have those plants, our fish would kill themselves. They would over-nutrify the water, they would pollute the water beyond what, what nature can do to get rid of it, and they would die. Okay. Conversely, if we don't overstock that system, we're going to have sad plants. They're, they're not going to be strong, they're going to be yellow, and they're going to have chlorosis, and they're going to get diseases, and they're not going to thrive, and they're not going to grow well, and you, you got me, because they're not getting enough fertilizer from the fish poop. So, in an aquaculture system, we don't want to overstock, because we want the system's natural biology to be able to get rid of of the excess toxins on its own. So one way we can do that, if we just have a big pond, you can have an ass load of fish in a big pond and they don't kill themselves. You know, what filters the little pond down at the, the local city park that's about an acre or three quarters of an acre in size? And the answer is nature, right? They might even have a little fountain bowl of water there and that helps with some oxygenation and stuff like that. But in the end, there's plenty of stock ponds out there on people's farms that are much smaller than an acre that have plenty of fish in them, and they don't just die. Bad things can happen. You have algal blooms, they can die, but in general, they don't. You have emergent vegetation. You have floating vegetation. You have enough surface area that every time the wind blows, there's a disturbance. If you have some depth to one side and shallow to the other, you get turnover. You get all types of, of different things that cause movement of the water, 
and exchanges. And, and that's how an aquatic system, that's what you're trying to mimic. So that could be as simple as we could set up a, a bunch of stock tanks and put one pump that pumps to the top one and lets it flow down each like a step to the lower one and we set our levels with some overflows and then we just put some plants into there. But I think the greatest tool available to the aquaponics person or the aquaculturist, and I didn't really cover these in great detail in the aquaponics episode, is wicking beds. And it's the main thing that I'm using in both of my or in all of my systems now. And here's why it's so beneficial. Yeah, we're talking about protein today, but we have to do something to make the water as healthy as possible. That means we're going to have a large amount of water and we're going to move it. Those are two constants that we're going to have in an aquatic system. So we have to move it somewhere anyway. So why not move it through something that also does something for us like rose plants? When we move it through a wicking bed system, what we've got is some sort of a container, and it's filled up, let's say, 10 inches with a media like lava rock. And then we have an overflow at that point, and we have some sort of a divider. I use perlite. Another thing you can use is landscape fabric, or shade cloth, anything that's a divider. And then we have a soil layer. And then we mulch the top, and we plumb water into it, and water is constantly flowing through this type of wicking bed. There's other wicking beds where what we're doing, we put a float valve in there, and we set a level. And when that float valve goes down, the water turns on, and it fills it back up to that level. And then it starts to work its way down, and it just stays full. I much prefer the concept of a constant flow bed. And when I say a certain word, everything's going to click for you if you know anything about freshwater ecology. Wetland. Wetland. If you had a small pond and you wanted to keep it as healthy as possible, if you had just a, even a very small inflow of water and a small outflow of water, and that water that was inflowing, if you made it into a wetland, so it went through a, a plant filtration cycle on its way in, you would have an amazingly clear, healthy pond. So that could be something like a, a large bog-like area full of things like cattails and um, lily pads and stuff like that. And if that water had to cycle through in river cane and you know soft rush and stuff like that, that type of a system, even in the, you might go in that system and dig down in that mud and it might reek from anaerobic. But that water that comes out the other side is beautiful. People design systems like this on purpose. When you build a wicking bed system with a lot of wicking beds in it, what you're creating is a wetland analog. No, it's not. You can make them bog-like if you want to. You can grow cattails in them. You can grow taro in them. You know, you can do whatever you want. You can grow water chestnut in a wicking bed. You set If you're going to do that, you set the level really high. You know, maybe you've only got about four or five inches of soil, and then the water level's really high in there on a constant flow wicking. So the water, the, 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 the media stays really, really wet. But in general, we're going to have maybe, you know, 20 inches or 18 inches or 14 inches of soil, and then maybe six inches of water, wet material underneath that just keeps that soil constantly moist. Now what's happening, though, is all of those rocks that that water's running through, all that area down there with all that the, that surface area on those, you know, the lava rock's so perfect for that. Because if you look at a lava rock, it's all those little holes and craters. You need a little rock that's the size of a golf ball. But if you were to extrapolate what the surface area off that rock is, it would be bigger than the room you're sitting in right now. 
because each contour and all rolls out. If you have spatial perception issues, you might not get that, but trust me, it's massive. If I actually told you how much surface area there was on a golf ball size lava rock and you didn't already know, you probably wouldn't believe me. Just let's say it's a lot. And there's thousands of them in there. And you have 20 or 30 wicking beds tied into a system if you do a really big system. And all of that biological life's living in there. And that water's constantly moving through there. And it's making exchanges with the soil above it. And it's taking a lot of that nutrient that's wicking up with the water. It's going to the plants. They're absorbing it. However, those plants do not have to get all of their nutrient from that system because they're in soil and we can take organic solid fertilizers and we can put it right on that soil and we can give them all the fertility they need beyond what they're getting from the system but they're still helping to clean the system and then we're not you know grow growing waterlogged produce a lot of people say like you know aquaponic tomatoes don't really taste that great they're really mushy or whatever that's because they're so overwatered right a tomato is actually a desert plant but we can grow tomatoes in a wicking bed and and, and run it a little bit leaner on its height, and make it a little bit more dry conditions that are more conducive to tomatoes. Or if we're growing something like a leaf crop, we can make it a more wet system that it's, it's, it's happier with, etc. We can grow anything that would grow in soil in a wicking bed. And we tie that into our aquatic system, and now we've got basically, we've hooked up a wetland into our system. And then that wetland, instead of producing cattails and bulrush, is producing sweet potatoes and tomatoes and tomatillos and melons and cucumbers and whatever else we want to eat. And now what we're doing is like a pseudo-aquaponics. Because there's no way that system, if we do a large system, let's say a couple thousand gallons of water, they can grow a lot of fish. There's no way that system's ever going to get all of its nutrient that it needs out of those fish. But what it really is getting is water and some nutrient, and it's, it's aiding the system and staying stable. And it's almost infinitely expandable. If we build a system with, let's say, 2,000 gallons of water in it, we could hook up wicking beds as far as you could see. And as long as we have enough pump to move that water and enough return to accommodate the return, you almost, you, you almost can never grow beyond what the system can do. Now imagine we could then up that. We could put a 24,000-gallon swimming pool in and do the same thing if we wanted to. And again, you'll never outgrow it. And the system becomes dramatically stable. So that's why I think that the ultimate tool to combine with all forms of aquatics, including aquaponics, is the wicking bed. Ebb and flow beds, I think, are useful in any system, though, for filtration. So I would say, like, for instance, I'm working right now on a timber frame pond that will be done with an EDM, EPDM pond liner, 25 mil. And uh, it, it will be about 3 foot deep and 8 foot by 8 foot in a cube. And... That will hold, I believe I calculated at right around 1,400 gallons. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of... I would have to put a ass ton of fish in there to have a couple ebb and flow beds and grow something like a tomato or something and have them get enough nutrient out of it. I'd have to way over... I mean, way, way overstock it to a point where it would be crazy, and then I would need a lot more grow bed to compensate for it. It's much easier to moderately stock it which would look a lot denser than most people would think you could, put a couple ebb and flow beds up there, and then grow something in them that doesn't really need a lot of nutrient, doesn't really care. Mint is a perfect plant. It's going to clog up your ebb and flow beds. Guys, we've had mint running for a year in ebb and flow. 
My buddy David's had it running for friggin' five years and some. Yes, it overtakes the bed. That's okay if it's a mint bed. Another plant you can grow that really doesn't need a lot of uh, nutrient and does very, very well is um, watercress. So that's an herb and an edible. So we, we, what I'll probably do with that system when it's completed is up on top, I'll have two big ebb and flow beds. Probably I'll probably go with 50-gallon uh, Rubbermaid stock tanks for those so that they'll be significant in, in volume and size. And they'll run on an ebb and flow cycle. But they'll be more as a mechanical filter that happens to have plants as a component of them. And then that system, I don't even know if that system's going to tie into wicking beds because I have another bigger system we'll be building this fall that, that's, that's going to take up the main effort on that for this year. But it, even in that second system, we'll still put a couple ebb and flows in there. And if, you're, if your ebb and flows do not get enough nutrient from your system because it's oversized and you're really doing something for fish over plants and your wicking beds are your main production, you can always find something that will still grow in that wicking bed and do well. And there's things you can do to cheat a little bit too. Um, one of the things that you might look at growing, and I can't do it because it's illegal, but you know, I'm just saying you can get seeds on eBay, um, Chinese water spinach or Thai water spinach, or they call it water spinach, Ipomira aquatica. Uh, well, an incredibly productive green plant. Um, Rob Bob, for Bob Bob's backyard uh, gardening or backyard aquaponics or backyard farm, whatever it is, Rob Bob on YouTube, he grows a ton of that stuff. And it's not illegal for him, so he puts his on YouTube so you can see it. Um, that will do really well, but it needs nutrient. But I can just say, because a little birdie told me, that if you have an under-nutrient system with ebb and flow growing that stuff, and you take something like blood meal and you just sprinkle it across the top of your ebb and flow bed so it slowly gets worked into the, the system as, as moisture you know, kind of wicks it down in there, it does really good all of a sudden. So there's all these little hacks and little things that you can do. But ebb and flow, I see, is your main uh, mechanical filtration, and you probably should have a little bit of it in any system. Because it just works so good for that. Because the water filters, like with the wicking beds, the water comes in and out, and it filters through. And that's great. But with a wicking bed, it, it, it filters as it comes up and fills, and then filters again as it goes down and out, up and down. And the other thing I think that everybody should have a wicking bed in their life somewhere is because it's so great for propagating plants. We have a real problem in Texas with tomatoes getting late and early blight. And eventually what happens is a plant just gets blighted to the point where it's not worth it anymore and you yank it out. But we have such a long growing season, what you do is while that plant's nice and healthy, you cut suckers off it and you root those suckers. And when you when they get that sucker nice and healthy and heavily rooted, and when you rip that other plant out, you pop the sucker right in and you know a month later you're getting tomatoes again. And if you keep rotating them like that, you're getting tomatoes through the whole season and you stop worrying about blight. Man, you want to see a tomato sucker root? Yeah, I know you can put them in a glass or a bottle. You stick them in an ebb and flow bed in, in a week and they have roots like you can't, like they look healthier than a tomato that you started in a pot and grew in soil. It's unbelievable the root system that those things have. Uh, right now I'm rooting passion flower, uh, maple, uh, blue, blue crown passion flower in my wicking beds. I couldn't get them to, to root for crap any other way. Pop them in a wicking bed. They take like three weeks before they put a, a single root on. But they just stay, they look healthy. They just stay nice and green and bright and healthy. And then at about three weeks, you get a couple little hair roots on them. And then a week later, they're just heavily rooted. You can transplant them to soil. Goji berries I did this year in one of my ebb and flow beds. So ebb and flow is also great for propagation. 
even if you're not going to grow in them. And when you're rooting something, you don't want to give it a lot of nutrient. So your oversized system that you'll never get enough nutrient out of your ebb and flow bed, that's actually perfect rooting media because you want the plant to put all of its energy into establishing roots on the cutting versus top growth. So, again, I think they belong everywhere. And you can also grow plants directly in a pond as well. Uh, there's a picture today of one of my ponds, and you can see growing right up out of it, there's some uh, Hawaiian blue taro. There's mint everywhere. There's also the stuff in the foreground is all uh, lamb's quarters. And they're not actually growing in the pond, but because the pond creates its own little humid zone, uh, without watering that edge around the pond, even though it's a steel pond, and the steel's above the, sh the, 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 the soil line, so it's not overflowing, it's still very, very well uh, kept moist by just the fact that it gets the sun in the morning and the shade in the evening, and there's a, the, the evaporative and condensing effect. So all that lamb's quarter is growing beautifully, and there's a little fence around that to keep my ducks out of it so they don't eat my lamb's quarters. So if I want lamb's quarters, I can just go out there and cut the young shoots off those big plants, and you know, sautéed lamb's quarters are great. So I've got taro, I've got mint, I've got other stuff, and I've got fish growing in there. Uh, I've got some water chestnut growing in there, uh, which is really you know efficient. And that is apart from any kind of major out external system. And the fact that water moves through there, all this stuff does great. And you'll notice the whole top is covered in green. That's not algae. It's mostly azola. It's some salvinia, and it's uh, some duckweed. And that's what I was talking about. I skim that thing, and if you look at the picture today, The growth, you can't even really tell that there's any missing, but there's a little missing. But I skimmed it last night, and it's still like already grown back. And that's the, how fast it grows. And it's a lot you get to eat that. So, you know, you can also grow plants, I guess, is important to understand, right in the pond. Um, let's talk about feeding for a minute. This is the one place I'm struggling the most to uh, figure out exactly what to do. Um, I, I, I think that it is almost impossible for the backyard grower right now to be completely feeding his fish with some sort of provided, you know, pro uh, uh, produced, mass-produced fish food that's also organic or all-natural or what have you. You're almost going to have to rely on commercial feed, and I look at it this way. It's probably better than anything you can buy in the store anyway feeding them that because they're eating other things in the system as well. Kind of like you're better off eating pastured po poultry on conventional feed than commercially produced organic poultry that are grown in a house and are just fed a different feed. If you give me the choice between this chicken was put in a chicken tractor and tractored across pasture and was able to eat grasshoppers and bugs and scratch and get in the dirt and eat grass and eat clover and it was fed, you know, Purina chicken feed. And then this chicken was fed 100% organic, but it lived in a house with a fan blowing through it so it didn't die from fumes. Uh, for, for its eight weeks of miserable existence, but it was just fed organic and, and, you know, and not given certain other chemicals, um, I'll take the one that was out on the pasture. And that's the way I've had to look at fish as I'm trying to, to work more and more in how I feed my fish. So the other challenge you have, especially when you're using small fish, harvested fish, from your local streams and ponds, is that they generally are not hip on coming to the surface to feed at first. So you're looking for a sinking feed. I went down to my feed store, uh, Russell Feeds here, where I get all my feed for my chickens, and, or my ducks, and my quail. I do have four little chickens now. I need to do more video with those guys for you. Uh, they're going to be chickens that hopefully raise baby quail. But um, 
and said, hey, do you have a sinking feed for, like, fish? And they said, yeah. And they got me this bag, and it looks like, a, you know, the Purina, the checker, red and white checkerboard. It doesn't even say anything on the bag. It's a plain bag, and the little tag says, you know, fish feed, and percentage of protein, I think it's like 37%, 100% sinking. And it looks like little rabbit pellets, and they're very, very hard, very, very dense. And when I throw those into the tank, the fish peck at them, they go to the bottom, and they sit there, and a lot of times they don't eat it. I don't think they're really fond of it. And I think that it's the longer it sits, the less fond they become. And the solution I found that works okay, but you got to like, it's an extra step, is you soak it till it's soft, and I'm talking maybe five minutes, and then feed it to them. So that as it's falling and they're pecking it, it's soft, they can get pieces off of it, and then they generally will eat it. But And it's very affordable. It's like, I don't know, 23 bucks for a 50-pound bag. So when you think about feed conversion ratios, there's a lot of bang for the buck there, but they don't really like it. Um, I, I buy a floating feed from them that I feed my channel catfish uh, that are in my, my big pond, my in-ground pond, and uh, they eat the hell out of that, and they have since they were very little, but the bluegill and what have you, it's so big, they, you know, unless they're really large and they've gotten really aggressive with their feeding response, they don't eat it well, and it, ha it has to wait till it gets soft, and if it gets soft, there's this window, so again... If you soak it for about 10 minutes and feed it, if they've gotten to the where they're surface feeding for you, they'll generally tear it up pretty good. They seem to like it better. But getting them fed, getting them feeding is something that I've struggled with. So what I had to do was find a sinking, small-sized feed. And I found a feed that I'll put a link to the show notes in, and I found two sizes that seem to work best, both training tilapia and training fish like, like bluegill, and uh, bullhead catfish and things like that to start feeding for you in a system when they've been wild caught. But what I've really settled on to get them feeding is a product made by Purina, and it's called Aquamax. And the size that I've been using is a fingerling starter, so it's really designed for starting uh, tilapia fingerling on the solid food, and it's the size 300. It's 1 16th inch per pellet. But I've found even the larger fish are more than happy to eat it, And then you can start moving them to more of a traditional floating feed as they get their feeding response up. And um, one of the best ways I've found to get them feeding is to, first of all, when you first bring them home, just don't feed them for like four or five days. Don't even try to feed them. Just, just put them in their own area, their own isolation tank, and wait four or five days. So they're good and hungry. And then feed them this stuff. And they'll generally start eating it fairly quickly. And then come up with some sort of a ritual that you do whenever they're going to get fed. Take your fingers and splash the water around. If there's a pump in that tank or something, turn it off. Uh, if there's a cover, lift it and move it to the side. So that there's a certain expectation in the little fish's fish brain that, hey, food's about to come. So that, that way what happens is after a time, when you walk over there and they see you, they don't all run and hide, they look at you like, hey, dude... Is it time? Are you going to give us something? They recognize you as a source of feed. And wild fish came up to this very, very quickly. And this is the feed. Here's the bad news. A 5.5-pound tub of it is 35 bucks. It's expensive. And it's why I've struggled with really getting this to where I want it because smaller fish have had a lot of problems getting them to eat these other feeds. But if you can get the feeding response up and then do something to soften the larger feed, you can go to feeding your stuff that's 20, 20 bucks a 50-pound bag, 25 bucks a 50-pound bag. And then I really think we should be looking for things to feed our fish beyond that, like natural feeding sources. Here's some options. 
This is why I, you know, I'll talk a little bit about my favorite species, which for local fish are bullheads, channel cats, and sunfish, um, but minnows. Especially through the winter, there's probably somewhere near you that about now or within a few weeks, you can go down with a dip net and a bucket and get a thousand minnows in 15 minutes. And you throw them in with your fish, your, 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 uh, your sunfish and all. And from the time bluegill are about, oh, about four inches, when they're hungry enough, they'll eat a minnow. They'll, they're, they're a predator. Um, the reason I like the, and I'm skipping ahead a little here, but the, the, the catfish and the sunfish is they will take readily to pelletized feeds, but they are predators. They'll eat aquatic insects, they'll eat snails, they'll eat minnows and things like that. So minnows, worms are a great thing. If you can put in a really big worm bed and keep ants out of it, that's one of our struggles here, but where you can harvest a big handful of worms every day, Just throw those in with your bluegills, and they're happy as a clam. So are all of your, your, your catfish species will readily take to feeding on them, and that's incredibly sustainable. And now you're getting out of being reliant on the commercial production feeds, which have you know pesticide issues and all the things we're trying to avoid in the first place. So worms are something I would look strongly at. Mealworms are a, another um, worm that you might look at. Now, my experience with mealworms was this. Dorothy was looking when we first moved here. I want some stuff that's just mine. Okay, great. Um, and I, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted to do, see. One of the things she thought is, well, I'll grow mealworms, and we can feed those to the chickens. And maybe some of our customers would buy mealworms for their chickens or for their reptiles or whatever. So she built a little mealworm house out of this drawer system that she saw on YouTube. And she messed around, and you pick out the aliens, and she did this for like uh, four or five, six weeks, maybe maybe more like two and a half, three months, and said, this is just not worth it. Just I'm not getting anywhere near enough mealworm yield to make this worth it. It's just not worth doing, and put it aside. So if you can grow lots of mealworms, if that's not a challenge for you, that would be something. Only the thing about mealworms is they tend to float, so you're going to have to service feed train your fish. I've never tried growing them, but when I was a kid in Pennsylvania, one of the bang-on bang baits for um, trout was a worm called a waxworm. They're basically a type of maggot. I don't know what insect that they turn into, uh, but they sink. And they were pretty cheap to buy, and we would buy tons of them. And when we'd be in like a lake where we knew they stocked trout, we'd just throw handfuls of those in in an area and shun them. And uh, we'd get tons of response to trout. I don't think you're actually supposed to do that in Pennsylvania, but I'm telling you we did. I'm sure the statute of limitations on chumming trout when I was 14 years old is up at this point. Um, but, yeah, like waxworms would be another uh, worm that I think would be valuable to grow for your fish. Um, I mentioned snails. This is something I'm really excited about. It's like a total windfall. So we put our aquaponic system in last year. It's made with two 330-gallon uh, IBCs, and then we have about a 50-gallon cylindrical food-grade tank that sits between them, and that's where my pump sits. And there's a solid separator in that, and that's the heart of the system. And with as many wicking beds as I have and all, I end up having to put about 20 gallons of water into the system a day to maintain the level. So that level will fluctuate a few inches up and down uh, in between me adding water to that system. And about early this spring, all of a sudden I started seeing snails in the system. And my first thought was, well, I just nuked it with copper in the first place because of an ick problem. Let's nuke it with copper again. That'll mop up any leftover ick and it'll eat their little, ex you know, their little, you know, 
sluggish bodies to death with copper and kill them all. And I wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, hold on, John, Jack. You, you, you look at this. Are, are they actually hurting anything? You know, I started looking at all of my vegetative growth, and any pest damage that I had was like some of my watercress was getting eaten, but they were getting eaten by the little green worms that are like the ones that get on like your cabbage and stuff like that. Uh, they, they, it wasn't snails. I couldn't see the snails doing any damage. So I'm like, well, I can always copper bomb them if I feel I need to. That's going to knock down my earthworms and all. Why, why would I want to do that if I don't have to? So all of a sudden, I watch the population of these snails get bigger and bigger and bigger, and like their favorite place to live is in the barrel where the pump is. And they don't really want to be in the water. They want to be just above the water. So wherever that water line is, there'll be this huge, like, band of snails and these are little bitty snails they're you know uh less than a quarter inch or probably right the big ones are right around a quarter inch and they're just sitting there on the side of the thing so i walk in I'm like hmm so i take my left hand and put it underneath them, my right finger and i just kind of knock them off the band until i get a big handful of them and i look into the ibc that's full of very large bluegills and and sunfish and i just drop a handful of them in there and they start sinking they're just tearing them up i went I have free protein for my fish. So every morning when I walk in there now, I just scrape them off and I throw them in the, to the big cube tanks and I watch the bluegills eat them. And to encourage it, since they're so thin-shelled, I'll take my two hands and kind of crack their shells so their little bodies are sticking out, rub it back and forth, and just rinse my hands off in there. And because I've taught them that when my hands stir the water up, there's food, their feeding response is immense. They come up and eat the snails. Now, here's what I'll tell you about. So here's the downside of tilapia. They won't eat them. But tilapia don't care. I've thrown red wigglers and earthworms and nightcrawlers in with the tilapia. They run over. They look at it. They watch you go to their bound. They look at it like, huh, look at that. There's a worm. I wonder what I'm supposed to do with that. You throw a worm in with a bluegill or a, a bullhead catfish, it's dead. They're going to eat it. So that's... That's another kind of uh, tip of the hat to the local fish. Uh, but snails and any other option you can come up with. Um, one of the things I did the first year I was here, and I should do it again, uh, I just should find it. I'm sure it's still here. I didn't get rid of it. I had a bug zapper. Oh, you got killing all the bugs. I'm killing mostly mosquitoes, so chill yourself out. But what I did is I just took my bug zapper, and I hung it over one of my garden ponds, and I set it on a timer so it would run from about an hour before dark Till about two hours after dark. That's when they, like two hours after dark, bug zappers just seem like they don't really do a lot of zapping anymore. And they would, bugs would fly into it, get zapped, and fall in the pond, and fish would eat them. So there, there's no reason if you have power available or if there's a solar option available that will work, you couldn't, in a multi tank system, suspend a bug zapper over every tank and zap bugs and, and, and drop them down to your fish. There's a very sustainable and a natural food source for your fish. And just about any of the fish species we grow for food would eat those. So I think that we need to do more work in coming up with them. But I think worms, uh, one of the coolest hacks I've ever heard, my buddy David has uh, a swimming pool he turned into a pond. And there's some kind of roach. I don't remember what kind they are, but they're grown. I think they're the Madagascar roaches, the big giant ones that get like the size of a mouse um, that are grown in the pet industry because they breed really fast and the babies, they feed them to you know reptiles and stuff. He has like a floating island with a little colony of adult roaches there, and they live out there, and you throw them scraps to eat, you know, old potato and stuff like that, and they constantly breed, but the bottom's like um, like hardware cloth, and so when the little babies hatch and they climb out, the first thing they do is fall straight into the water and the fish eat them. So they're just constantly going there. I've seen people do the same thing with black soldier fly. 
So you take a black soldier fly uh, system where the black soldier flies are coming in and they're having their, their baby little maggot things. And when it's time for them to pupate, if you give them, I think it's a 45-degree angle, but there's some angle you give them. They'll crawl up that angle, and then wherever they fall into, that's where they turn into a pupa. They don't want to be a pupa with their, their cohorts because while the other ones are still maggots, they'll eat them. And then they hatch into a black soldier fly, and they go make new soldier flies. Once they're adults, they don't eat. They don't do anything. They just make new soldier flies. So you set that system up, and you put your 45-degree angle angle to your fish tank, and you just throw all your scraps in there, and then those black soldier fly larvae just crawl straight into your fish tank and feed your fish for you. So I think that's things like that we need to make this as, as sustainable as possible. Let's talk a little bit about harvesting fish from the wild. Uh, for your system and, and three different main ways you can do that. The, the first way that I think of and the way that I use a lot of is rod and reel. Rod and reel has a lot of advantages. If you are careful in what you're doing, I have found it to have pretty much the highest survival rate. Uh, the fish don't get really banged up. Fish are, you know, if, 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 if being caught with a fish hook killed fish, catch and release wouldn't be a thing. Um, so rod and reel has a lot going for it. You can generally target a specific species. So if you're looking for bullheads, you know a certain time of day with a certain bait fished on the bottom, you're probably going to get bullheads in certain bodies of water. Where some other methods are kind of, you don't know where you're going to get. Um, you're targeting bluegills, small bait, no weight, small hook. You know, Cast it out and allow it to sink slowly, you're probably going to catch sunfish if you're in a place where sunfish are. Um, and, and again, very high survival rates. The negative is you can get gut hooked fish, and they almost inevitably die. Uh, I, I, I've I've been actually when I started harvesting fish, there's been a lot of times where I've gotten a, a hook out of a fish, and I thought, well, maybe he'll live, and I'll throw him back, and he swims away. And now I know that almost inevitably that fish is going to die, because almost every time I've said, well, we'll see if this one will live, and I put it in with the other fish, it ends up floating by the end of the day. When you get into the guts and you get blood, but here's the deal. That's the true whenever, whenever you're fishing. It doesn't matter whether you're doing catch and release, whether you're fishing for harvest, or whether you're collecting fish for your system. So if you gut hook fish, just accept that's going to be a loss. And you can do things to minimize that. Uh, I just put an article out on, on uh, bullheadfishing.com uh, this week about minimizing gut hooks and bullheads. And basically it's using a slip rig with a very heavy, bob, uh, heavy weight. So you have like a three-quarter ounce casting weight, but the line's going through it. So when the fish pulls it, that weight provides no resistance. But you fish with the bail closed on the rod, and you fish with a tight line so that that line is tight against the tip of the rod. So when that fish picks up that bait and moves, the rod's pressure alone pulls the hook into the fish's mouth, and either you miss the fish, and then the line's still there, and it'll come back for it again, or you hook the fish in the lip instead of the gut. So there's many ways we can minimize gut hooks, and that's your that's your only real negative to line and rod and line. I guess the other is quantity. Other methods, you can get more fish faster. That said, yesterday, again, I got about 50 little little bluegills and, and, and green sunfish in less than an hour. And that was doing some other things while I was there. So if you have the right place, the right technique, and the right situation, you can get a lot quickly with high survival rate. Netting, uh, whether you're cast netting, sign netting, dip netting, etc., uh, those are great ways to catch fish. I'd say they have the next highest level of survivability. Though when you get smaller fish in cast nets and they get through the, the netting and they get it to their gills, you have a very high rate of death as well. So it all depends on the size of the fish for the size of the net. 
The big negatives of netting is in many places it's completely illegal. So it all depends on whether it's legal where you are or, or not. Where I live, if I want to take a cast net and throw it into a place with a bunch of bluegills and keep them, I can take as many as I want of any size I want, and no one cares. Uh, if I actually, let's say, got a largemouth bass in there, all I have to do is let it go. No one cares. In my once home state of Pennsylvania, if you got cast, caught throwing a cast net in fresh water, you're in deep shit. I mean, you're in deep shit. It's, it's a bigger deal than you had one, extra, one fish beyond your limit. Let me put it to you that way. Um, so, you know, is it legal? Now, on the other hand, in Pennsylvania where I lived, using a sign net of a certain size, which is a net that basically has two poles, and it has weights in the front and floats in the back. And they're really useful in places with cutout banks and stuff like that and creeks. You get in the water and you push up against there and you prod underneath. And as the fish swim back, they get caught in the net. And when you lift it up, you have your fish. They're right in front of you and you can throw them out. Catching minnows with a sign net was completely legal where I grew up. I don't know if it still is in Pennsylvania, but it was. But I don't know that there was anything else you could have harvested with it. It seems like if you had a creek with a cutout bank that was full of bullhead catfish, it'd be a great way to get them. We used to catch stone caddies like that in Pennsylvania. Stone catfish are little catfish that are dynamite smallmouth bass bait. Um, but, you know, I've not used them much. Uh, dip nets, to me, are best for minnows. And in places with large amounts of minnows, they are a fantastic option to get minnows for your system or minnows for feed. Um, there were creeks that I used to fish when I was a kid in Pennsylvania, not Pennsylvania, Florida, where, I mean, just uh, you take one big swap from a, a good size like, butterfly-style dip net, And it was just teeming with thousands of minnows. Four or five scoops dropped into a bucket, and you had you know, a couple thousand, five thousand minnows in there. So that's where I see your dip nets being the best. Uh, again, I think you have a pretty high survival rate. And if it's legal and if the situation is right, you can get a lot fast. Uh, the last is trapping. And trapping may be legal, highly illegal, moderately illegal, illegal but no one cares, illegal and you're going to end up spending a night in jail. It all depends on where you live. So a big negative to trapping is can you do it? In Texas, it's legal for sunfish and bluegills and stuff like that, but it's pretty restrictive on the size of the hole and the size of the trap itself. Unless it's private water. If it's private property, then all bets are off. Um, so if you have a, a farmer, you know, with a great big stock tank full of bullheads and you want to put a great big metal fish trap in there with a couple skinned up, you know, sliced up perch in the middle of it and catch a million of them, no one cares, no one cares, no one cares. And um, so that's, that's an option if you have it available to you. The downside of trapping is when you when you trap with traps that actually are effective not little soft traps and stuff like that you know hard metal traps that are large you end up with a lot of fish getting some skin skin scales and stuff like that you have fairly high loss rates uh they become much more susceptible to infections and things like that but it does work and it is effective um a little note on the best method i found to get your fish home alive no matter how you trap them uh we use five gallon buckets And what I did is I took a five-gallon bucket and a, like a, uh, like a three-eighth-inch drill bit, and I drilled a ton of holes in it, like a minnow bucket, in the bottom and the sides. Um, and then you have a lid on it with a hole cut in the middle, and you can take something like a bubble box or a hush bubbler 
And I did a bubble box as a review item. I'll link to that review today so you can get one of those if you need one for your system. You put that on the side of your bucket and put it through that hole. You take that bucket, if where you're fishing has deep enough water that's also shallow enough and level enough bottom, you stick it straight in the water so just the top's above the water with your lid sitting on it. You don't even need your bubbler at this point. And when you catch a fish, you take that lid off and you drop him in there. So he's in the same water he came out of, like a minnow bucket, and the water's flowing through there. You bring a second bucket with you. And when it's time to leave, you fill that bucket up with a fresh thing of water. You set it on the bank. You pull your one with all the holes in it. You let it dry, drip dry. All the fish are flipping around it. You stick it in the other bucket. Now they have a brand new fresh bit of water. Then you stick your battery bubbler in there for the ride home. Um, yesterday, when I went out and did that, one of the reasons I called it short as well was I realized when I got to the pond, I didn't bring my bubbler. But I did have my, my jack-hacked giant minnow bucket. And I went, I'm going to give this a shot anyway. And I didn't lose a single fish coming home. Lost a couple that bailed out of the tank once they were put in it. My, Dorothy came in and said there were four fish on the ground. Two were dry and, and dead. Two were flipping around and dirty, so I rinsed them off and threw them back in. I'm like, okay. But on the trip home, I lost no fish without a bubbler. It was about a 30-minute drive. It was about 95 degrees out. But it's because they were in their own water. They only had to make that 30-minute trip with a fresh bucket of water. And, and that's a little hack that I think will get you a lot more fish home. I'm actually working what I'm, on what I'm calling a truck-based live well. And basically what I'm going to do with that, I'm going to take a small pump and put a spray bar, which is basically just a piece of half-inch PVC with a cap on the end of it and a bunch of holes drilled in it. So when that pump's running, it's spraying all that water across that bar, just like a live well in a boat. And since I have a Stephen Harris battery bank in my toolbox, I can just run a short extension cord or run the pump cord to probably be long enough into there and then fill that with water from my system that the fish will be healthy in and throw a couple like Gatorade bottles with, with ice inside of them in there to keep it cool with the lid down. And then as you get your bucket like so much full, you take a trip up to the truck, dump your fish into the the cooler, and keep them in there with that water spray. I think that'll let me take longer trips keeping fish alive. If you have a boat and you're fishing in a boat, obviously your live well is a great way to go. But it does you no good to harvest these fish to bring them home only to have them dead. And this last weekend I caught a bunch of bull, bullheads and a bunch of perch. I lost over half the perch even with a bubbler because I forgot my bucket with holes in it. That bucket with holes in it, that thing's just brilliant. It's simple, and if they made a purpose-built, you know, flip-flap minnow bucket style that was bigger uh, than the little ones they make, I'd buy it, but they don't, so I fabricated my own. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a great way to go. Another option would be a fish basket. Uh, I'll try to find one of those for you and put that uh, for you in the show notes as well. I'm sure that they, they still have those. Uh, but anything that keeps the fish in the water that they're swimming in for as long as possible until you leave, is really kind of the best way to go to keep your fish alive. Let's talk real quick about species that I recommend. I really recommend bullhead and channel catfish. Um, I had a, a system failure this winter, and I ended up with one of the tanks completely drained. It had about four inches of ice on top of it. The ice fell down to the bottom when it drained, and there was no water there. And there were you know a half dozen channel catfish, little fingerling channel catfish in that tank, And I don't know how long they were there, but they were sitting under the ice with no water in frigid temperatures. 
And when I found out that it happened and pulled the ice off and like looked down and saw them laying there in the lava rock, I'm like, damn it, they were all alive. Every single one of them made it. I put them into another tank, they swam, and they survived. Um, catfish are tough. Catfish are tough. Now, the thing that'll nuke them is ick, which is a parasite that we won't get into today, but because they don't have any scales, they're a scaleless fish. Ick is devastating to catfish, bullhead and channel cat alike. Bullhead, I, I, we're, we're playing with that. I am already very impressed. Uh, I've always been a fan of eating bullheads. I grew up eating them. I don't care what people say. No, they don't live on mud. They don't eat shit. They don't eat their own shit. They don't taste like mud. All of these stupid statements are by people that have never eaten one or don't know how to cook fish. They're so mushy. What'd you do? Cook it for an hour? You know, I mean, come on. Um, but they, they grow relatively quickly. They, they reproduce to a point where they actually overpopulate ponds really, really fast. Um, they're available anywhere you would go. And if you can catch them in the 8-inch range, they're great to harvest at the 12-inch range. And you only need to grow four more inches of fish. You can easily do that in half a year if you're feeding them well. So I think that they have an incredible potential for that. They're also a fish that I will say their, their, their eating quality is better if they're harvested when the water temperature is lower. But they're easier to catch when the water temperature is higher. So you catch them when the water is warm, you put them in your system, and you harvest them mostly during the cooler parts of the year, and you get the best of both worlds. I will also say this. A 12-inch bullhead has more meat than a 12-inch channel catfish. Channel catfish get bigger, but bullheads have more meat on them at a smaller size. They grow much fatter, much more round-type uh, uh, shape to them. So those are two I really recommend, and I really recommend bullheads. And then sunfish slash perch, uh, slash brim, slash whatever you want to call them. Yes, I know what a real perch is, like a yellow perch or a white perch. But in, the, in Texas, all little sunfish are called perch. What I mean by this is bluegills, pumpkin seeds, green sunfish, long-ear sunfish, fish like that. These guys are easy to catch really, really small ones and, and, and larger ones as well. Um, they are one of the I think they're one of the best eating fish in the water, your various sunfishes, your panfish, I guess another word for them. Um, really white meat, really flaky, sweet, uh, and, and harvestable at about seven to eight inches is, is kind of ideal. You can, you can eat a six inch bluegill. It's just, you know, a seven inch one has relatively so much more harvestability, but eight, nine inches is like, you know, then they get really like football shaped and they get a lot of thickness across the back and all. Now, given that they're really easy to find in the four, five, six inch range in small garden ponds, park ponds, things like that, that means we can go out and catch those fish in June and be harvesting them easily in September to October. And certainly if we grow some through the next year, now we're talking dinner plate size, you know, two hand bluegills and brims, right? Um, so they have that going for them. The big thing with the bullhead and the sunfish, though, is they tend to overpopulate small ponds. They tend to be under-harvested. So I think it's beneficial to harvest them. And it makes them more useful, both what's left behind in the pond and what we're taking for our own use, because they're stunted in growth because there's too many of them and not enough feed, so we don't want to harvest them because they're not big enough to eat. But if we don't harvest them, they never will be big enough to eat because the overpopulation problem will never correct itself. You got it? 
So that's why I think that both of those species uh, fit that. Let's talk about some housing options. I think the best option you have with the least amount of work and the most uh, natural sustainability is an in-ground pond, a typical pond, whether it be a little 20th of an acre stock tank or a one-acre lake or anything in between. And then all you really have to do is make sure you have enough minnows and aquatic life in there and just start throwing fish in it. And then you just fish whenever you need fish. Um, if you if you add to that some sort of you know supplemental feeding regimen, then it becomes very easy to harvest fish. You get larger fish. You have less likely to have stunted growth. It's it's just it is set it and forget it. And there's some things we can do with that, but you know I don't really want to belabor that today. The next and I think the easiest one for people to do relatively quickly is doing systems based on stock tanks. I have some systems built with galvanized tanks. I've had, all the fish are going to die. Well, it's three years and they're not dead yet. All the plants are going to die. Well, it's three years and all the plants aren't dead yet. Uh, maybe you should stop reading books and, and, and reading forums and start actually looking at reality and the way things work. But whatever. Zinc is actually a necessary nutrient for human life, and there's not enough in there to kill you. So it's actually, just relax. But I actually prefer um, plastic, Rubbermaid-style stock tanks. Um, Tractor Supply has an eight-foot round, two-foot deep plastic stock tank plumbed with a bulkhead. Seems like a great idea. Seems like a great idea. The problem. The problem is it's bright blue and it looks retarded. It just does. It just It's like an eyesore. It's like a giant kiddie pool. They also make them in gray. The gray is much more subdued. It looks a lot nicer. And, you know, as long as you have a level spot and power to it, you fill it up with water and you start building your system around it. If you can get it, like, backfilled with dirt halfway, three-quarters away, whatever, you know, you're, you're, all, all the better. All the better. Another way to do that would be to do something like landscape timbers and then drop your oval tank into it and backfill it with sand around the edges. That would be a really easy way to go. But I think stock tank systems have a lot of potential because they're easy to do. We can even do stock tank baked systems with the 100-gallon Rubbermaid ones. You know, five of those is a 500-gallon tank. They can be all plumb common on a level surface, and then we all we need is a place to pump water that flows back into them uh, to ha create a moving system, and each one of those can be a different growth stage tank. Now, it's a lot smaller. You're getting much closer to an aquaponic system at that point, et cetera, but that's another option. Then you have your true aquaponic systems, whether they're based on the Rubbermaid stock tanks, IBCs, it doesn't matter. And you also have timber frame line tanks, which is what I'm doing now. The way I'm doing that, I'm building a timber-framed box out of 4x4s. So you level an area, you put four 4x4s on the ground, kind of interlocked like a log cabin style. So one end goes here, and they're kind of dog ear overlap at the ends. And you take some really long galvanized spikes, and you drive them through the 4x4s into the ground. And then you take another course of your 4x4s, and you offset how the ends go. You drill holes in them, and you take, you know, 7-inch galvanized spikes, and you take a sledgehammer, and you drive that course into the top of the next course. And you repeat until you get the height you want. You take a rubber liner, you drop it in there, you fold the corners, you overlay the ends, you put one more course or you put a, you know, some uh, two-by-sixes on there for a top frame to cover the, 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 the liner, and you fill it up with water. Put a, put a pump in it, start running water either in a fountain or up through some flood and drain beds or whatever. That's exactly what I'm doing at the corner of my garage. 
right out there because that power right there. We had started to build that structure originally to put a water catchment tank on, decided we didn't really need to do that, and we're going to put in basically a 1,400-gallon fish tank there. That will be an independent system from the rest. That You can grow a lot of fish in that. I mean, if you stick the bluegill or bullhead as your primary species in there, put a couple filtration beds in there, a couple ebb and flow beds just to grow mint or watercress or something like that that doesn't really need a lot of just for mechanical filtration, and you feed those fish, you know, a couple of years into it, you can go out there and harvest fish whenever you want. You used to have to occasionally throw some new ones in, keep your genetics diversified. I think there's great ways in some of these tanks that we would think that fish wouldn't breed in to encourage fish to breed. Bullheads like to breed by burrowing into soil or mud. Um, they'll do it in sand. So you can take a five-gallon bucket, pop a couple small holes in it with a drill so there's some flow, fill it three-quarters of the way with sand, sink it to the bottom of your pond, They'll burrow in there and they'll, they'll, they'll breed. I personally think they'll breed. If you take something like three inch PVC pipe and build like an apartment, like you got five going across the bottom and then stack like cordwood, like two or three high and maybe two foot long. So they have like tunnels that they can go into and sink that in the bottom of your pond. I think you catfish should breed in there. I know that it's going to be good biology structure. It's going to be good structure cover for the fish, etc. Um, I've seen, Fry in my little tanks already uh, this year that I know are, are, are either bluegill or long ear sunfish fry. So even this relatively small artificial pond, given the right conditions, you're going to end up with fish beginning to reproduce on their own. And here's the thing. You're going to kill some fish, and the ones that die don't reproduce, and the ones that live do. And over time, you can develop kind of your own native uh, species, including, I believe, some, some hybrids of uh, different sunfish interbreeding with each other. And uh, so those are just kind of your four main things. I didn't want to get real deep into any of them. I just want to point them out here toward the end. And I also want to talk about automating some functions. So Buddy David's living kind of one of his bucket list dreams right now. He's up in uh, Skagway, Alaska for like three to four weeks. But one of the things he's working on up there is material for this course that we've been talking about putting out now for quite a while. And one of the things we want to do is to be able to provide some level of pre-programmed automation uh, systems to go along with it, or you can just get that on its own. And we were talking this last week before he left about, he's like, what are some functions that you think would make a lot of sense? So, you know, the one that I would wish I had in my system was where all my valves are that I set my flow rates with. I'd rather set that with some sort of a solenoid that's a certain, you know, open or closed to control my flow. And what I would like is a system to just turn it on full bore for one minute a day and then restrict it back to where it needs to be for a cleaning cycle, to basically clean it out. Or just close everything at once and then open one at a time and then open everything back up so that at one point in the system was blown out you know, once a day. And the reason for this is if I go a couple days without checking my system, especially my ebb and flow beds and my wicking beds, I'll go out and they'll, they'll be rolling very, very slowly or sometimes not at all, even though the valve's, you know, three quarters or a quarter or a half open. And what happens is you're just, there's just fish poop and other things in those systems. And plus I have hard water and those valves will get clogged. And all you got to do is you open it all the way, let it run a couple seconds and close it. So that would be one thing to look at a way you could automate it. Another would be topping water off. I mentioned that you know I have to go out and throw the hose in my, my main aquatics uh, aquaponics system, 
and uh, you know run maybe 10 minutes of water because uh, it's a pretty slow flow pipe that I have out there uh, a day. Sometimes maybe it's five minutes, but I have to add water to it every day. That could be done with a with a mechanical type, you know, solenoid based solution with a high water, low water thing, or it could just be done with a float valve. But I think that like bringing automation to these systems makes them more resilient. We can leave a week, so your fish don't get fed for a week. They'll be okay. But you also won't come home with it drained. You won't come home with all your plants dead, etc. So I think automation is something. What I want to finish up with in completion, though, today, though, is why I think the system is truly sustainable compared to a lot of things that we, we trick ourselves into believing are sustainable and even regenerative. So let's start out with sustainability. If we're building a system primarily growing fish that are either easy to bring captivity like tilapia or locally harvested from things like bullheads and sunfishes, which are largely overpopulated and growth-stunted, then we have an unlimited supply of fish for very little to no money. I mean, I went out and caught the, the, the sunfish that I caught yesterday, the bluegill, the perch, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I used a product called Ber Berkey Gulp uh, Pink Maggots. So they're little rubber maggots, and they're you know about, uh, I'd say, a little more than a quarter inch long. Come in a little jar. Um, my record so far, I've caught 18 perch on one. One of them before it finally fell off. It was too beat up. 18 on one. A jar's like three bucks. So you don't have to buy bait, for God's sakes, right? Um, and then the best bait I found for the bluegill, those little perch, you fillet them and you put a piece of cut perch. So for one little thing of gulp and a couple lines and hooks, you can constantly supply yourself with new fish. And it's fun. And it forces you to learn the resources around you, which is good for survival and sustainability anyway. But you're not going to overfish these fish. So they're, they're truly sustainable. Now is it regenerative, though? How does it actually make things better? Well, one, we need to think when we think about regenerative cycles, it's not just regenerating land, but regenerating ourselves as human beings. So we need to be eating better, higher quality food. And I think if we're taking these types of fish into our systems and growing them in our systems where we have control over everything and we're eating that high quality, I mean, you can't be more local, right? You're talking zero food miles at that point. Um, that's regenerative for us. It's regenerative for our communities. It's stabilizing. Like, if you want to regenerate something, the first thing you have to do is make it more resilient and stable so that it has time to regenerate. And, and I believe that does that as well. But I also think that we can be, you know, if we had enough people in local areas doing this, we can have a positive effect on these bodies of water. Let me give you an example. This pond I'm talking about that I've been catching these bullheads and, and, and perch out of. The reason I can catch so many perch is they're, they're, they're practically starving to death. They are so hungry that when anything that looks like food hits the water, they're all over it. And some of them I did cut up for bait. And I'm cutting up, you know, a green sunfish that's three and a half inches long. Looks kind of fat for a starving fish. Well, that's because it's full of eggs. They're spawning at that size. Those fish should be having their first spawn when they're about five to six inches in size, not two and a half, three inches. That, that body of water is pretty small. It, it looks like there's no bass in it. There's no predators in it other than turtles. The turtles are going to be better at catching larger fish than smaller fish, believe it or not. Um, if you look at the picture of the, the bullhead that I caught out of there that was like, 
I said that fish is like 14, 15 inches and like almost three pounds. He's tore up. And he's tore up from turtles trying to kill him. He's got a big slice in his tail, his fins all tore up, you know. He's out in my aquaponics system now. He's probably happier than he's been in a long time. It's all nice and cool in there. He gets fed every day. He's the biggest fish in there. No turtles are trying to eat him anymore. He has no idea that one day a fillet knife is going to clean him. He doesn't know that. Um, but the turtles are like the only main predator. And there's so many of those little fish that they're fast enough. The turtles really have a hard time catching them. So there's no real culling mechanism. So they're staying at a size where they can live largely on plankton. They don't really need a lot of minnows. Um, and they're not being culled. If you start taking fish out of that pond, and I've seen people looking at me kind of odd, like, who's this big, burly-looking, bearded redneck with this little bucket in the water, you know, taking a hundred of these tiny fish? And I know what most of the people are probably thinking. He's going to take all the fish out of here, and there ain't going to ever be no big ones. Well, the truth is there's never going to be any big ones until people start taking them out of there because they're overpopulated. And while I've, I've caught some larger bullheads, they're able to withstand the turtles at larger size. There's still a, just a ton of itty-bitty ones in there, and they're also overpopulated. And, and the reason they can be more um, large fish is because they will at least eat small bluegills and sunfish. But the, the, it, it's clear that the balance is completely out of whack. So if we are using these two particular, I wouldn't even say species, two types of fish, Bullheads, because you can get black, yellow, and brown bullheads. And sunfish, again, bluegill, pumpkin seeds, green sunfish, red ear sunfish, long ear sunfish, all these different species. They get so overpopulated in an area that harvesting actually can improve the situation. So I, I think there's a lot to this as a sustainable model. And I, the other thing is they're both very good eating fish. They have a pretty high yield to body weight, and they're actually... You know, they're, they're both fish that once they get to a certain size, you're better off harvesting them than letting them get much bigger. You know, bullheads, they call them bullheads, half the damn fish is his head. But when those things are like 10 inches, you get a pretty good little pan-sized frying fish. And we've got a pretty cool way. I'll put a link in today's show notes as well to an article I did about how to clean them. And you got one that I fried up with a duck egg. It looks pretty damn good, and trust me, it was. So anyway, I'd like more of the people in this audience to consider, you know, growing fish at home one way or another, and especially, you know, growing fish out of your local ecosystems, because that is as sustainable as it gets. And if we can get those fish feeding on minnows or worms that we're growing or bugs that are naturally being put into the system or soldier fly larvae or something like that, even half their diet, we're moving the needle even more so to the direction of fully sustainable. And as we do more research, we'll figure out more ways to, to get the yield that we're looking for in meat with less and less of supplemental feed. So, again, hope you enjoyed today's show, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this and your projects that you're doing uh, with growing fish protein and sustainable systems in your own backyard. With that, if you do enjoy this show and you want to help support us, one way is to simply do your online shopping through tspaz.com. Whenever you're going to shop online, just go to tspaz.com first. It'll redirect you to a page on our website. You can click a link and see all the deals of the day over at Amazon, and then you can do your shopping on Amazon from there. Or you can see our current item of the day and all our past reviews. You can click another link to see that. Today's item of the day is an item that I've kind of resurrected as an encore item, but it, it's really, I think, one of the most versatile products that the prepper and the fisherman can have. It is tarred bank line. 
A tarred bank line is exactly what it sounds like. It's a twine that's impregnated with tar. Here's the secret to tarred bank line. Most of it sucks, and it's not tarred bank line. Just because line is black doesn't mean it's tied. It's used, tarred. It's usually dyed. If it's tarred, when you feel it, it should be sticky. When you wrap it over itself, it should cling to itself. If you take your fingers and you kind of rub the, t the tip with your fingers back and forth, it shouldn't fray. Tarred. Get it? Tarred. That's the whole point. Actually, I know this sounds obvious. And that if you buy a product and it says tarred line or tarred bank line, then it should actually have tar on it. It seems ridiculous that you'd have to point that out. Except that, in almost every instance, if you buy tarred bank line and it's not made by a company called Catahoula Manufacturing, it's not tarred bank line. And it sucks. And you might as well just go buy kite string or just nylon twine. It doesn't have any of the advantages of tarred bank line. So what is the big advantage of tarred bank line? When you make a knot with it, it holds, it stays. When you wrap it, like if you're binding two things together and you're doing a wrap, it binds up like almost like using uh, sinew. You know, where you wet up sinew that you've, you've, you've gotten out of the muscle of a big game animal like they make arrows with in the Stone Age. Um, it, it has that kind of a holding ability to it. And it is the best by far for limb lines and trot lines for your fishing. So I thought it felt well, it fit well with today, even though that's more of the type of fishing you do to harvest fish to actually eat. Uh, but it's, it's fantastic for that. I mean, here's the other thing. You can get uh, the, the, the size I recommend that you have. Now, other sizes are great, smaller and larger, but I recommend everybody have some number 36. You get a 550-foot uh, roll of uh, tarred number 36 tarred bank line it'll weigh less than a pound and it's it's you know a little it's very small it takes up very little space in your kit and it's very space conscious because there's a it's on a spool and it's about a one inch diameter hole you can store more things inside that hole like oh i don't know all the stuff you would need to deploy bank line with it for for using um or deploy limb lines with it you could have enough stuff in there to put out 30 limb lines for limb line fishing. So that's great for your wilderness kit or what have you. It's great around the homestead. It is the best bang for the buck. My basic feelings about parachute cord is it's kind of cool. It does some different things and it's all right to have around. But in the end, it's not really the great survival uh, cordage that people make it out to be. If, if they couldn't make a whole bunch of bracelets out of it that, they, that, that people sold in all little small businesses everywhere, I don't think that... that parachute cord would have the survival reputation that it does this stuff is the cordage you want in your pack because you can carry a lot more and a lot less space and it's a lot more versatile yes i know you can take parachute cord apart and you can splice it together and you but it's i'm telling you it's it's crap compared to this stuff but you gotta have cmi catahoula manufacturing and uh, if you buy anything else you'll be disappointed If, if somebody knows of another manufacturer that makes a true tarred bank line, please let me know. This stuff is the only stuff I've found. Again, the number 36, 550-foot reel is the one I have linked to, but that's a link where you can get any size and test that you want, and uh, you should you know, buy to your needs. But I think everybody should have at least one of these spools in their packs. Next up, let's talk about today's song of the day. Here's what John Adam has on deck for us. It's a, it's a song that, that I always loved, and it's one of those songs that I'll, I'll always remember because of the time of my life that it came out. It came out in 1992. 
1992, I had one year left to my enlistment in, in the United States Army. I had just gotten back from my deployment to Honduras, and I had been in Honduras for six months. And for six months, I lived in a tent uh, with a plywood floor and ate an MRE for lunch every day and, and worked in some of the nastiest uh, commissions as far, conditions as far as weather and just overall environment that I've ever been in in my life. Um, I had been crapping in, a, in, a, in an outhouse with a, a half a 55-gallon drum with a garbage bag in it for six months and taking a shower uh, in a plywood building that, with water that came out the end of a piece of a PVC pipe with a nozzle on it. Um, that's how I had been living. And I actually am really grateful for that experience. And even at the time, I was like, when it was done, when I was done with that six-month deployment, I was ready to be done with it. But, and I, but I, was, I was still like glad I did it. And I was so grateful because I decided at that point I was not going to re-enlist. I had about one year left in the Army. I had great friends. Um, I had a blast, you know, most nights hanging out at the NCO club, drinking beer and dancing to country music. And that's where this song came into my life. It's against Ships That Don't Come In by Joe Diffie. And, uh, you know... It, it's an easy layup with soldiers. You mention a soldier in a country song where people go listen to country music when people aren't in the military, and it's going to be hit, a hit. I mean, it, it is. But this song, I don't know. It it, it always had a, a secondary meaning to me because I guess I'm the kind of person who doesn't believe in waiting on things. But you know, along the lines of the songs, here's to all the soldiers who ever died in vain. Uh, the insep, insane wrapped up in themselves and the homeless down on Maine. Um, and those who wait forever for ships that don't come in. I missed the line in there, but that, that's where it ends up. Those who wait forever for ships that don't come in. And I, I don't ever want to, you know, put anybody down, but, you know, I consider the, the, the one real victim in that. It, it being the, 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 the soldier that dies in vain because they believe in what they're doing and they're missing. And I didn't know that yet at the time. But, like, the homeless, like, I feel bad for people who are homeless, but I also feel like you can do something. You know, and as far as waiting for your ship to come in, like, to me, that's very much, I hate to put it this way, but it's loser language. It's loser language. It's, it's the same type of thing when people say to me, well, I got this business idea, but I don't want to tell anybody about it because then they might steal it from me. It's loser language. It, 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 we, we, we can't sit around waiting for our ship to come in. We have to go out and find our ship. And, 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 but this, I love the song anyway because it's, it's so true, and we all have the potential to slide into this mindset. Oh, I, I, I don't have what I need, and I, I, could have, you know, I should have more. But see, the song does a good job of addressing that. You know, the one point in it says we bitch about a dollar. When there's those without a dime, see it had in it this 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 concept of yeah what you know here's to all of the people that have all of these problems, but yet we are our own solution, and so if we are our own solution, so are these other people. It's up to us to decide whether we're going to sit around waiting for things to get better, or we're going to get busy with making things better, and we can have compassion. And reflection for those who never get it right. But they should be an impetus for us to do all we can to get it right. To not wait for a ship, but rather to build a ship. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I could tell he'd had a tough life By the way he said and stared And me, I'd come to push and shove So I pulled up the chair We talked of roads untraveled We talked of love untrue Of strings that come unraveled We were kings and kindred fools And just when I'd hit bottom That old man raised his glass And said at least we've had our chances There's those who never have So here's to all the soldiers Who have ever died in vain Insane locked up in themselves The homeless down on Maine To those who stand on empty shores And spin against the wind And those who wait forever For ships that don't come in Said it's only life's illusions that bring us to this bar to pick up these old crutches and compare each other's scars. Cause the things we're calling heartaches held a heart worth our time. We bitch about a dollar. When there's those without a dime And as he ordered one last round He said, I guess we can't complain God made life a gamble And we're still in the game So here's to all the soldiers Who have ever died in vain Ain't locked up in themselves The homeless down on Maine To those who stand on empty shores And spit against the wind And those who wait forever For ships that don't come in ships that don't come in.